FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Uh, this is Bernard Gersh at the Mayo Clinic, and uh, with me is uh, Dr. Amir Lerman, a colleague, very much of an old friend, and he's in his role as a professor of medicine and director of the Chest Pain Clinic and is really going to uh, discuss, the non- we're going to discuss the non-revascularizable patient. Welcome, Amir. Thank you. Give me, uh, just, yeah, just give me an idea uh, of the scope of the problem. I, I mean, how many of these patients are out there? Patients who've had bypass surgery, they've had prior PCI, they have recurrent severe life-limiting, not life-limiting, quality of life-limiting angina, and they need new therapies. Uh, that, that's, that's a very uh, important question because I think the incidence of the disease is a moving target, and I will explain myself. I think uh, it depends, uh, highly depends on the recent development in technology. So if you talk about uh, the definition of disease or the prevalence of disease 10 years ago, uh, people believed that it was about 20% of the patient undergoing coronary angiography. However, currently when you have new technology for revascularization, uh, the incidence may be declined to about 15% of the patient uh, coming to the cath lab uh, with angina. Uh, if you're talking about number, uh, the estimate number is very difficult to estimate, but it's some, in some data in ours and other centers, it's about 100 to 200,000 uh, patients a year in the United States. So it's, it's very much, it's, very it's much. a big problem. So about 15% of people that come to our cath lab with symptomatic yeah. angina are non-revascularizable. And what proportion do you think of those or people that have had prior procedures? Must be the vast majority. The vast majority, yes. So I think that what we define as a non-revascularized patient are patients that majority of them has some kind of intervention procedure in the past, or bypass surgery, or PCI, or, uh, both. or both. In co- bo- a lot of cases, both. So, I mean, begin, when we talk about what we can do for these people, obviously, secondary prevention, risk factor modification, mm. control, all those variables, but what do you define as a failure of medical therapy? So, I think we need to define what's the challenge of the treatment of this patient, what are we trying to achieve? Uh, it was believed um, when this issue was initially targeted that these patients are carrying a high a rate of event and mortality. And uh, that's... It's not so. No. It's actually... And that was the one of the initial treatment was under the assumption that these patients have a high mortality. So these are people who are leading miserable lives, but they continue to... They don't yeah. die. So data from uh, uh, other centers in our indicate that their rate of mortality currently is between a 4 or 5% per year. Now, not only that, half of them don't die from cardiovascular disease. So right. you, you're talking about mortality rate about 2.5% from cardiovascular disease. It's very difficult to design a therapy uh, which is less invasive, which have no... Well, why do you think the cardiac mortality is low in this group of people with bad disease? Because I, I think they are survivors. I think they went through uh, acute MI, the non-ST elevation MI, ST elevation MI, was able to survive, and then Collaterals. they live collaterals, and they live with chronic angina and ischemia, but they are able to live without having a significant event. So the challenge is to improve the quality of their lives, and mm-hmm. let's go back again to... The definition of optimal medical therapy in 2012. 
So I think that in my definition and other people's definition, the, the, the definition for optimal medical therapy in this patient is to be able to uh, improve their quality of life without creating an uh, adverse event. Right, and so what, what would you define as the optimal Dec pharmacologic regimen? So we need to, uh, first of all, the measurement should be uh, their, their angina attacks, the number of nitroglycerin they use. Uh, currently, the, the medications that are used are nitroglycerin, nitrate, uh, ACE inhibition, beta blockers. Um, in some cases, uh, calcitonin blocker, but in most of the cases now, uh, two medications are being added. One of them is ranolazine Renexa, which is probably the only anti-anginal drug that was came on the market in the last 20 years since nitrate. And uh, there are some studies um, that are adding L-arginine to this patient from the... For endothelial function. For endothelial function microcirculation. Just, I want to just stop you for a moment and, and make one point. I, I am struck in my own practice how many people on nitroglycerin with angina have never been told to use it prophylactically. No. You're right, and we we, uh, we indicate to our patient to do a preemptive, and to, for instance, if before exercise, before even you know, right. some of them have angina attack in response to mental stress, we advise them to do that. The, the issue with nitrate is that uh, nitroglycerin do not uh, work on the microcirculation. So if we believe that at least part of their angina is resulted from the microcirculation, then in this patient, nitroglycerin will not work, and ranolazine will probably do so a better job. So before we say medical therapy has failed, and then I want you to hmm. discuss some of the procedures, we would insist on a failure of a beta blocker, prophylactic nitroglycerin, the addition of a calcium channel blocker if tolerated, and the addition of ranolazine. Yes. Okay. ACE inhibitors may play yeah. a role, but uh, may not. It depends whether they're hypertensive, endothelial dysfunction, and so on. Yeah. So briefly, because there are a lot of interesting procedures that are still ongoing, give us the quickly the history of the procedures that have failed, like translaser, myocardial revascularization. So the initial so procedures uh, uh, were, were actually designed to, from the assumption to increase the density of the microcirculation and induce angiogenesis. So there are two main procedures that we use. One of them is to induce angiogenesis under a physical injury, such as a TMR and PMR. TMR is translaser, yeah. mm -hmm. myocardial revascularization, revascularization, PMR is percutaneous. Yeah. So th this procedure were uh, invasive in nature and that carry with them uh, a diverse event and risk. So and in several, it's not that they, they were not able to reduce the angina, but the perioperative mortality and risk was about 4 or 5%. But I thought also that the only double-blind trial showed was probably a placebo effect. There is placebo effect too. And, and the proof if they really induce angiogenesis is still uh, not completely clear. So, yeah. but, but the problem with these procedures is that they carry a lot of perioperative mortality because of the invasive nature. But of the which procedure. was the trial, the, the one randomized trial really showed no yeah. difference yeah. in symptoms. That, this that was, was the, the, tra the percutaneous one. Yeah, percutaneous myocardial revascularization. Now, the second one was again from the same principle that you want to induce angiogenesis to increase perfusion was uh, um, many studies that use uh, uh, delivery of cells uh, like VEGF and PGDF uh, f for to, to induce angiogenesis. Cells and or proteins? Cells, cells and proteins. And uh, all these studies did not show significant improvement in exercise capacity that were... So basically gene therapy yeah. for angiogenesis hasn't worked. There is, and we discussed this in one of the other right. interviews, there is uh, an interesting cell therapy trial yes. from uh, Douglas Sorda mm -hmm. with CD34 yeah. progenitor cells, which does appear to reduce... 
the, uh, the difference the difference between these cells is that uh, you may be trying to do different things. We're not right. sure if it's in angiogenesis. And also, th- um, uh, the future studies uh, of this cell delivery may be based on special delivery to area that we think are at risk. So, Amir, what have we got right now in the armamentarium available to mm-hmm. us in the chest pain clinic? So, the patient has failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to go into a stem cell trial. We've got EECP. Mm-hmm and transcutaneous stimulation. And and we have shock, uh, and new shockwave therapy. Tell us quickly, briefly, what mm-hmm. you think of EECP. Do you think so it's placebo? Do you think it's real? No, I think the EECP is real. I think it's real. I think we see uh, a good response to the EECP. Uh, the, uh, the mechanism is still uh, under a lot of speculation. I believe it's at least part of the mechanism that we break the cycle and do uh, in a passive exercise on these patients, then they improve their capacity. So I think that the ECP is real. Do you think that the shear stresses, alter shear stresses, may alter change sh- endothelial function? Shear stress, we show previously that in other groups show that improve endothelial function. It's yes. very difficult to discriminate between the improvement in parameters and improving exercise capacity. Yeah, the, I have to say, though, I, in some patients, the magnitude of the benefit is, is so great mm-hmm. that I, I just can't believe it's all placebo. Yeah. Uh, there, there's something going on that we don't understand. No, I think the ECP is real. There are some limitations about uh, you can't use it in all the patients and the limitation of how many treatment you have to right. have. You have to have 35 sessions, and it's not so convenient to the patient. But it's real. And So tell us it. about um, transcutaneous stimulation. Who the, the, the first step would be EECP. Yeah. Then if the patient fails that. Yeah, so we evaluate the patient for the spinal cord stimulator that has been used for many years for other pain relief, uh, uh, mainly uh, uh, diabetic neuropathy or spinal, or spinal stenosis. And uh, currently we work together with the pain clinic to see uh, if they response to the stimulation. So we don't put it in. Uh, with the anesthesia until they have, we have proven that this, uh, this is actually works for this specific patient. I do think it works specifically for patients that have a uh, pain threshold and the uh, issues, and not necessarily all of them are ischemic-derived. But we see some patients that were able to uh, see good response in the spinal cord stimulator. There was a study funded by Medtronic that the results are going to be out soon, randomized study by the spinal cord stimulator. The other new technologies that are coming to light is uh, uh, what we call a shock tape therapy, which is actually uh, using the same ultrasound uh, wave that is used for lithotripsy for the kidney in like 10% of the energy to deliver to area of at risk under echo guidance. Trans endocardially? No, uh, uh, from the uh, outside chest. So you look at areas that are viable and ischemic. And ischemic. And you deliver a series of, uh, uh, by protocol, uh, a short, short uh, shock tape therapy. Uh, it was very, it's very uh, popular in Asia. Um, there are some good data from Europe. And so w- what are you achieving other than banging the heart on the no, head, so to actually, speak? Actually, uh, <laughs> you actually, there are data, um, there are two things that you can achieve. One of them is there is a data about angiogenesis from animal models. And second, and this is an old data uh, that actually was initiated uh, not from the heart but from the joint uh, therapy, that it may uh, enhance recruitment of stem cell into the area of ischemia. Well, and, and Andreas here in Germany was presenting some of this data know, that he's some, using. There, there's some interesting data. You're right. It's from Andreas Zaire in Frankfurt where they're using shockwave therapy to modify the environment for stem cell subsequent stem cell implantation. So the data is encouraging. There is some preliminary data from a safety 
uh, data that we uh, we at Mayo uh, were uh, the central uh, site for that. And uh, the initial data that was not a randomized study show it's safe, um, and it's a, and it's a, uh, a in resulted in increased exercise capacity. But we still need to do a, a good randomized study before it become a, a more standard. So, therapy. Amir, just in closing, um, I want to make a comment and then also ask you just to speculate a little bit. One thing I have no- noticed in working in the chest pain clinic, which is not easy, these are patients who've had many, many procedures, and it's often very difficult to decide whether one is dealing with angina. And I, mm-hmm. I really do feel that there's a lot of functional overlay. They, they're very challenging patients uh, that one has to speak with and deal with very frankly. Well, but what I wanted you to speculate is, uh, we're sitting here in five years' time, having the same interview. What what else will be what else will be up in front of us? Well, I, I think that the, the challenging uh, for a new device and a new therapy um, is actually reside not by by the technology, but by the fact that you currently um, new technology and medication are challenged by the FDA to see that they improve quality of life rather than event. So if you design a new therapy and you want to introduce into the market, you need to show reduction event, which if you have a population that have such a low event rate, it's very difficult. So what about in, 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 in non-less re- regulated environments, perhaps? So I, th- I think that we will see more um, uh, uh, devices like the shock therapy, uh, maybe a modified ECP that will not require a long-term therapy for that. Mm-hmm. And we are optimistic about the cells. We are optimistic that if we are able to deliver cells to the specific area of uh, ischemia and variable area, then we, maybe we can increase that. Last thing, do you think that there's an avenue in terms of um, understanding and perhaps synthesizing the signaling pathways that underlie ischemic preconditioning and then precondition these hearts? Yeah, I think it's an, also an area that uh, that is uh, should be explored. I think there is controversial data about the precondition, uh, whether it's going to be a remote precondition or direct precondition, and I think this is something that could be explored. It's also possible that the ECP by itself is sort of a kind of remote precondition, uh, that you actually do that by inflation and deflation. Of the so the message for our audience is, is very clear. There are a large number of patients. They have failed revascularization. We need to pay attention to prevention obviously, the use of prophylactic nitroglycerin. We have a new anti-angel in renolazine to add to our current armamentarium, and then all is not lost. I mean, we do have these three other options, EECP, maybe shockwave, transcutaneous stimulation, and we'll see where the cell repair therapy, how it plays out over the next uh, few years. Thanks very much, Amir. Thank you very much. Great to have you. Thanks. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.